Amen. Thank you, music team. We are beginning a new series this week, a short series. This is the season of Advent, as Zach mentioned earlier. Advent, uh, that word refers to a season historically in which Christians have prepared for Christmas. And so Christmas is not the season, Advent is the season, and it leads us up to, uh, up to Christmas. Uh, and it's about waiting that word ad, Advent means arrival, and so it's a, it's a season in which Christians are prepared for, waiting for the arrival of Jesus. Yes, celebrated in his first coming at Christmas, but also waiting for his second coming uh, in, uh, in the future. And so we're going to be looking at the book of Ruth, the Old Testament book of Ruth, this Advent. And you may be asking the question, Why? Uh, Ruth lived about a thousand years before Jesus was born. So why in the world would we talk about her at the time of year when we usually talk about Jesus's birth? Well, for one reason, Matthew, uh, Matthew's gospel tells us that Ruth is an ancestor of Jesus. She is one of the women who is mentioned in Jesus's genealogy in Matthew chapter one. And so uh, humanly speaking, Jesus would not have been born if not for Ruth. His story happens because of her story. But also looking at it from another vantage point, uh, her story takes place within the frame of his story. Right? We believe that every part of the Bible whispers the name of Jesus, and that includes the book of Ruth. Ruth's loyalty and kindness uh, at a time when all seemed lost reflects the mission of Jesus to us. Scripture tells us that Jesus came at the right time when all seemed lost. And that's the story of Ruth. And so if you would turn with me to Ruth chapter 1. We're going to read the, the whole chapter. If you haven't found Ruth yet, she's kind of small. She's between Judges and Samuel, so you may want to use, uh, use your table of contents, but we're going to read the whole first chapter of Ruth. Let's give our attention to God's word. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, and they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah. And the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. 
But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. They lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, would you take this old story, would you bring it to life for us, and would you bring us to life through it? And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. That's a mighty depressing way to start Advent, isn't it? Right? All these happy trees and lights and... Here we are talking about famine and hunger and death and bitterness. Why in the world uh, would we do that? What's going on here, right? We we meet this ordinary family uh, of four, Elimelech, Naomi, their two sons. And within the first five verses of the book, there's only one of them left, the widow Naomi. And we're meant to read this, I think, and ask What is God doing here? Is God even present? Has he he taken his hands off the wheel? You've asked questions like that, I'm sure. Even faithful people often ask why. 
we get through chapter 1 of Ruth and we ask, is there, is there any hope? Is there any hope here? Uh, and what I think, at least one lesson we can learn from the book of Ruth is this, that while God's work may be hidden to us, God's work may not be apparent to us, as we just sang, I may not know the way I go. God's work may be hidden, but he is still at work. And so there are two, there's really one thing I want us to do, I'm going to break it into two sections, and it's this, when God seems absent, when his work is hidden to us, when we think, man, is God even around, when God seems absent, absent, we need to look for his fingerprints. We need to look for those traces of where God is at work. So let's look at that first point. When God seems absent, there is a whole world of information that, we, that the writer gives us in this first verse. The first thing he tells us is that these things happen in the day when the judges ruled. And if you're not familiar with the story of the Old Testament or with the book of Judges, which comes right before this, you need to know that this is not a sunny spot in Israel's history. Uh, the book of Judges, uh, if, you'll, if you'll read it, you'll see that there's really not a whole lot to celebrate in the book of Judges. The whole book is actually uh, a cycle of sin and repentance and sin, right? God's people, uh, they're in the promised land, uh, and they would leave God to worship other gods, the gods of the nations around them. And so God would give them over to that sin. He would say, all right, you want to worship the God of the Moabites? Then I'll give you into the hand of the Moabites. And he would allow the Moabites to come and oppress them for a certain period of time. And then God, and then the people would cry out and they would say, have mercy. And God would send a deliverer, a judge, a military ruler. Uh, And judges didn't rule the whole land of Israel. It was usually just... Uh, different regional parts. There's not even national unity at this point. And the judge would come in and, and he would chase off the bad guys and everybody would be happy for a time. And then the people would start worshiping other gods again and the cycle would start itself over. That's, that's the background of what's happening in Ruth. And actually, as the book of Judges goes, it actually gets worse and worse and worse. It's not just a, a cycle, but it's a downward spiral. And if you read the last five chapters of the book of Judges, you'll see it, it's, it's R-rated. I mean, there's some pretty atrocious stuff that the Israelites do to each other at the end of that book. And the theme is repeated at the very end of the book. In Judges 21-25, it says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And when everyone does what is right in their own eyes, you get chaos. And that's what's happening. Uh, That's the background to the story of Ruth. And then we learn that on top of that, if that wasn't bad enough, uh, there's also a famine. There's a famine in the land. Uh, In the ancient world, right, even even today, right, food scarcity and hunger, those are scary things. In fact, of the major catastrophes that could happen— War, disease, and famine, war and disease were preferable because they typically were over quickly. Famine was usually not. And so we have a famine. And there's even a little bit of irony here. Uh, this, the setting where the story starts is Bethlehem. And Bethlehem was known, it was famous for growing food. 
The name Bethlehem means house of bread. But sadly, there's no bread in the house of bread. And so what we see is that Elimelech takes his family and they go to Moab. And there's a lot of history here as well. The Moabites are an old enemy of Israel. So things are bad and they're getting worse. Uh, In the book of Numbers, the Old Testament book of Numbers, as Israel is making their way to the promised land, they cross through Moab. They're, They're going over the plains of Moab. And it's the Moabite king, Balak, who hires a sorcerer named Balaam. Don't have to worry about the names. I won't quiz you later. He hires a sorcerer to curse the Israelites. That's how the Moabites feel about Israel. Now, Balaam's curse fails. But then a little while later, we see in the book of Judges that one of the nations that oppressed Israel were the Moabites. In Judges chapter 3. So these people are not allies. They do not worship Israel's God. They do not worship the Lord. And then in verse 2, we see that the family, not only do they sojourn to Moab, but they end up staying there. And then in verse 4, we see that they lived there for 10 years. Now, the author doesn't make any comment on this. He doesn't say whether this was a good decision or a bad decision or a neutral decision. But because of all of that history, I have to think that the original readers of Ruth, the original hearers of Ruth, would hear this and they would wince. They would say, that's probably not a good call, right? Uh, Famine, again, the the author doesn't say this, right? Famine could happen for lots of reasons. Uh, It wasn't always tied directly to sin, But one of the things that could happen, God tells his people that as long as you walk with me, as long as you're in fellowship with me, I'll bless your home, I'll bless your field, right? You'll have abundance, it'll be fine. But one of the the consequences of walking away from God, one of the tools that God would use to try to draw his people back is famine. If they walked away, then he would say, then I'll shut the heavens, right? It won't rain, you won't have crops to eat. Right? The goal was to get people to turn back to the Lord. Now, we don't know if that was the cause of the famine here. The author doesn't say. But it is interesting that when famine comes, Elimelech, who ironically his name means God is king, does not turn to the Lord. He turns to Moab. He doesn't even stay in the land. He leaves the land and goes into enemy territory and ends up living there. And if that wasn't bad, it still gets even worse. Once they get to Moab, Elimelech dies. And then after that, both of his sons die. Uh, Now, being a widow is difficult, And that was especially true in the ancient world. It's still especially true in the developing world because that's your source of income, your source of survival. All right? So that's bad enough, right? There's the grief and loss that goes with it, but now the question of survival is in play. Will we we be able to make a living? Will we be able to survive? So that's being a widow in the ancient world, but not only was Naomi a widow, she ends up being a childless widow. So now her social support network, her family, 
She has no, she has no children. She has no grandchildren. All means of support are taken away from Naomi. Uh, and she also has no extended family because she lives in a foreign country. And so it's safe to say that Naomi is about as low as she can go. So then you can understand where Naomi's coming from when she says things like, The Lord's hand has gone out against me, verse 13. Or why she changes her name from pleasant, Naomi, to bitter, Mara, verse 20. Why she says that the Lord has testified against her, (coughs) excuse me, by bringing her back empty. You can understand why her heart would be there. This is what lament sounds like. She's complaining. And you may think Naomi is crossing a line when she says what she says. You may, you may think, but she can't say that. How can you blame the Lord? But what I, what I want you to hear is the faith underneath that complaint. Naomi knows exactly who's in charge. Naomi knows exactly who is responsible. She knows exactly who to go to with her bitterness. Now, she doesn't know what he's doing. But she acknowledges, for instance, when she says, the Lord has testified against me, she's acknowledging that he's the judge. He's, he's the almighty. He's the king of the universe. He is passing sentence on her. And she may not know why, but she knows that it's happening, and she's feeling it, and it hurts, and she's expressing it. That's lament. God's work is hidden to her. But God is not absent. In fact, all of that pain is beginning to move her in the right direction. Look at verse 6. She arose after all of that devastation, then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. That word return It happens 12 times. It happens 15 times in the whole book. It happens 12 of those 15 in this first chapter. So whenever there's a word that's repeated multiple times, you can have an indication that that's what this passage is about. That's the theme. It's the Hebrew word for turn. And that same word is used in the Old Testament to describe repentance, turning to God. And so by turning back towards her home, Naomi is beginning to turn back towards her God. If she had turned away, right, and gone to the land of Moab, she'd sought food somewhere else. Now, she realizes how empty she is, and she's beginning to turn back. And why does she return? What is it that makes her go back? It says, the Lord had visited his people And given them food. As Paul says in Romans, it is the Lord's kindness that leads to repentance. She hears of God's kindness and she turns back towards it. So while all seems dark and it seems that God is absent, there's actually a glimmer of light on the horizon. 
Maybe he's not absent after all. And so how do we look for his fingerprints? Well, let's see what happens on the return trip. Again, verse 6. She'd heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return, there's that word again, each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt kindly with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And so Naomi tells her daughters-in-law to make the wise choice. As she's starting to head back towards Judah, towards the land of promise, she tells her daughters-in-law, all right, it's time for you to go back. She puts a choice before them, right? You notice that word, return. They can either turn to the Lord, they can turn to Israel, or they can turn back and go home. And so uh, she tells them to go home. She says, don't stay with me. Uh, and humanly speaking, that's the wise choice. Humanly speaking, there's no future with Naomi. In fact, that's what she tells them when, they, uh, when they are, they're, they're weeping there together. So this is clearly a heart-wrenching scene. They have a good relationship with each other. And they say, no, 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 we will turn, we will return with you to your people. Naomi basically says, y'all, there's nothing for you here. I, I have no husband. And even if I were to have a husband, and it were, even if it were still possible for me to have children still, would you wait around till they grew up and could, they could marry you? This is, this is silly. There's no future with me. If you go with me, you'll be widowed and poor in a foreign land. Which is probably, uh, they probably aren't very well liked there because they're Moabites. So going with Naomi would put them in an impossible situation with no visible exit ramps. It's not a good idea. And so after lots of weeping, Orpah makes her decision and heads home. But we're told that Ruth clings to Naomi. And Naomi tries to convince her to leave. Verse 15. See, your sister-in-law has gone back. Return. There's that word again. To her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Do you notice that? The choice is not just a cultural one. It's not just an economic or an ethnic one. She says, return to your people, but she also says, return to your gods. This is not just a cultural or economic choice. It's a theological choice. For Ruth to go back is for Ruth to choose the God of Moab instead of the God of Israel. So that's the choice that Ruth has before her. And it's what makes her next statement one of the most beautiful vows of loyalty and faith in the entire Bible. Look at verse 16. Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, 
Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. Ruth vows to stick with Naomi all the way to the end, even beyond her own death. Where you die, I will die, and I'll be buried there. Ruth, Ruth is throwing it all in on Naomi, right? She's not hedging her bets. She's putting everything with Naomi. That's how far Ruth is willing to go. But notice, it's not just a cultural choice nor an economic choice. It's a theological choice. Because at the very heart of Ruth's confession, she says, Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Ruth is saying, I will choose to follow Yahweh. I will choose to follow the Lord, to worship your God. Not only is Ruth choosing the people of Israel, she's choosing Israel's God. And what was God's promise? What was the sentence that that God promises throughout the Old Testament? I will be your God and you will be my people. Ruth's words are meant to make us think of that. So she too is turning. She's turning her back on her past and she's turning to the Lord. It's reminiscent of what Jesus tells his disciples when he says, forsake everything and follow me. That's the kind of choice we're talking about here. There's nothing for you back there. And so everything, I'm, everything is with you, Lord. So what about you? Maybe like the prodigal son, you've been wandering in the far country for some time. Maybe you thought that there was food in Moab, but what you found after trying to feast there for so long, you found that it's not satisfying. Maybe you even found death there. Maybe what you thought was going to satisfy you ended up leaving you more empty. I want you to consider Ruth. I want you to consider her choice. I want to invite you this morning to turn. Turn away from that empty path that you've been following and turn to the Lord. It may not look very good. Ruth's chances didn't look good uh, with Naomi. But she turned and went that way anyway. And what we see is, in fact, there may be a future after all. Look at how the chapter ends. Look at verse 22. Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. The beginning of barley harvest. There's bread in the house of bread again. God is at work. A new day is dawning. Something better is coming. That's the hope of tracing the hidden work of God is that a new day is dawning. Even when there's no king in Israel... And everyone does what is right in his own eyes. There is still a king on the throne of the universe. Are you tempted to despair or anger or bitterness 
or sadness because things look really, really, really dark. There's bread in Bethlehem. God is at work. God's up to something. Have hope. Are you spiritually hungry? Are you like Ruth and Naomi, hungry in a foreign land? Well, some 1,000 years after this, a baby boy would be born in Bethlehem, in the house of bread. And that boy would grow up. And he would say in John six thirty-five, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Are you hungry this morning? All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And hear this. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. If you come to the bread of life, you will not be disappointed. His work may be hidden. It may be a difficult road. But as we sang, I may not know the way I go. But, oh, I know my guide, and his love can never fail. Have you trusted in the unfailing love of God this morning? That's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to have hope, that you would help us to trust, even when we cannot see what you are doing even when we do not know how you are working, and we're even tempted to think you're not at work. How can you be at work? You're working. Help us to look for your fingerprints. Help us to trace the bright line on the horizon that reminds us there's bread in Bethlehem. You're at work, and a better day is coming. And we can have hope because of that. Lord, this morning, if we haven't ever been satisfied by Jesus, if we have been wandering, famished, and hungry, Lord, I pray that for the first time we would be nourished and fed, that we would trust in your unfailing love, that we would turn to you and we'd never look back. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.